You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Before we begin, I want to thank my newest patron, Jacob. Thanks so much for supporting the program. During the extensive series that I'll be commencing with this episode, patrons can expect a couple exclusive ad-free blindside minisodes in their feeds, covering some of the peripheral stories of this sprawling topic. I'm planning at least one blindside per month right now. In addition to the other benefits offered to patrons, such as teasers and early episode release, so be sure to pledge your support in order to get the entire story. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 When you go to Talkspace.com, match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. On to the show. Welcome to the first episode of a very special historical blindness mini-series. My name is Nathaniel Lloyd and I'll be chairing this congressional investigation into a terrible event that left our nation mournful, furious, and paranoid. This episode, I will be focusing on one much disputed tragedy among several. It occurred fewer than five years after the murder of the 35th President of the United States at Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas, during the era of disillusionment and mistrust that his assassination provoked and it was followed within two months by the murder of Robert F. Kennedy, presidential hopeful and bearer of the standard of hope that many believed had been torn asunder by his brother's assassination. Thus, the optimism of the 1960s was killed by a handful of bullets, and trust in our government was forever diminished by the persistent questions of who was really behind these slayings. And of course, you've heard plenty of conspiracy theories about the JFK assassination, from the plethora of books and films that explore it. You've likely heard quite a lot about the RFK assassination as well. In fact, the creators of podcast giant Crime Town recently produced a fantastic mini-series on it called the RFK Tapes. But there appear to be fewer books and less media attention generally on the assassination that occurred between the two Kennedy assassinations. The victim of this assassination was a champion of the marginalized. So this may reflect a further historical disregard for him and those he represents. I'm speaking, of course, of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., firebrand and spearhead of the American Civil Rights Movement. His assassination differed from that of the two Kennedys in several regards. Aside from simple differences of race, King, while a political figure, was not a politician. He was not a candidate for the presidency. He was the president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, 
a preacher and activist, a symbol of nonviolence, and a proponent not only of equality and social justice, but of peace and harmony. After his murder, an international manhunt commenced, concluding in the arrest at Heathrow Airport in London of a white Missourian named James Earl Ray. This accused assassin accepted responsibility for King's death in a guilty plea, but over the course of the next 30 years, he fought for a new trial and encouraged the conspiracy theories that swirled around the crime. By the time of his death, incredibly, he had convinced even those closest to Dr. Martin Luther King of his innocence. And today, many still believe he was a patsy in a nefarious and well-planned plot. But we know that an idea being popular or even prevalent doesn't make it true. Thank you for listening to The Killing of Dr. King, Part 1, A Dream Defied. Before I continue with the episode, a short apology is in order. I'm acutely aware that some may deem it inappropriate for me, as a white man, to take it upon myself to tell the story of Martin Luther King and his martyrdom. In public discourse, there long ago appeared the notion that stories and history of a certain race, culture, or ethnicity belong to and can only be told by members of that group. I appreciate and encourage the desire to take back the history of one's people to protect it from misrepresentation and corruption by those looking only to preserve their hierarchical status and or ensure the continued oppression of the disadvantaged. And I would like to think that Dr. King himself, who fought untiringly in life for an alliance among all races in an all-inclusive, beloved community, would not begrudge the fact that someone of a race other than his own might write about his life. Indeed, he has had numerous white biographers. And that he might even suggest that to forbid such a thing would amount to academic segregation. Therefore, to any who might think I am not the person who should be telling this story, I ask only for your patient and honest consideration of the content of this study. Dr. King had not planned to visit Memphis, Tennessee in March of 1968. At the time, he was busy planning a march on Washington, the Poor People's Campaign, meant to unite poverty-stricken populations across racial lines. But recent events in Memphis drew his attention. The predominantly African-American sanitation workers had gone on strike over poor pay and lack of benefits, driven to action after two workers were accidentally crushed to death in a garbage truck, and the city refused to provide any compensation to their bereaved families. The impasse reached during their strike precipitated the city's first civil rights march, which ended in violence between marchers and police after a police car rolled over a marcher's foot. When Dr. King came to speak at the strike headquarters on March 18th, he was met by 15,000 people. And despite all his plans and busy schedule, he agreed to return later that month to lead them in another march. However, upon his return, before he and other members of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or SCLC, could hold their planned workshops on nonviolent resistance with the Memphis protesters, a new element of violent protesters had invaded the city, rioting, looting, and starting fires. 4,000 National Guardsmen were sent in, 
and 300 rioters were arrested. King was distraught, but not defeated. Holding a press conference, he announced that he would return within a few days to lead a nonviolent march. After a brief time at home in Atlanta, the time had come to fly back to Memphis. It was April 3rd, and when his friend Zernona Clayton came to pick him up and drive him to the airport, his children began to behave strangely, begging him not to go, almost as if they had some premonition about what would befall him on his trip. I came over in the morning to pick Martin up, to drive him to the airport to go to Memphis. The children saw him going to the airport all the time. But this day, the boys blocked the door and said, Daddy, don't leave. And he said, oh, I'll be right back. I'm just going down to Memphis. I'll be back. Then they ran ahead of him and blocked the stairs and said, Daddy, don't leave us. And he said, listen, I'm coming right back. I'm just going to go down there for March. You know, I explained why I'm going. These people have been mistreated in Memphis, and I'm going to do something about it. That's my work, and you know that. They ran over to my car, and then they jumped on the hood of the car, pleading again through the window, Daddy, please don't go. Daddy, please don't leave us. Daddy, please. Then, in another ominous sign, once he had boarded his plane, it remained on the tarmac, and King waited as they searched the plane from nose to tail, for a bomb threat had been made. Eventually, the plane took off, and King joked that it looked like he wouldn't be killed after all, prompting his friends to assure him that no one was going to kill him. Upon arrival in Memphis, though, another dark portent arrived in the form of their car and driver, which had been provided by a funeral home. That night, King had turned in, but a phone call roused him. It turned out that some 2,000 people had gathered at the strike headquarters, hoping to see the newly arrived Dr. King speak. Reluctantly, King dressed and made his way there. His friend, SCLC Program Director Reverend Ralph Abernathy, delivered a grand impromptu introduction for him that has since been likened to a eulogy. And then Martin Luther King Jr. took the pulpit. Based on the content of the now famous speech he delivered that night, it is clear that death was on his mind. He had faced it throughout his career in countless states where he had gone to confront systemic racism and violence, as well as to curb the rioting of his own brothers and sisters. In his speech, he spoke of one incident in particular, in which a deranged woman had stabbed him at a book signing. He quoted the letter of a little white girl who had written him thankful he had not sneezed, remarking that if he had sneezed, he would have died. And he listed all of the accomplishments in the civil rights movement that he would not have been around for if he had sneezed. Then, uncharacteristically, he remarked upon risks to his life that he may still face, expressing a sense of peace tinged by defiance. 
Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Watching that speech is a remarkable experience, especially knowing its context. King steps suddenly away from the microphone to sit back down, seemingly overcome with emotion, collapsing into Reverend Abernathy's arms, looking almost shocked. He seems to have truly confronted his death, facing his fear and overcoming it. The next day, he is described as being in a far more hopeful and joyous mood than he had been in some time. Before the end of the day, Dr. King would be dead, his life taken before he even reached his 40th year. This man who inspired and outraged the world was born on January 15, 1929, to a family of preachers, and his name was actually Michael. For generations, members of his family had served as the pastors of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, first his maternal grandfather, then his own father. When he was six years old, his father decided to change both their names they would be known from then on as Martin Luther King Sr. and Jr. after the great reformer. From a young age, Martin Jr. showed himself to be devoted to nonviolence, turning the other cheek when bullies brutalized him at school or when he encountered the scorn of bigots. Not to say that he was a preternaturally mature or saintly character as a child. He was also a bit of a scamp, an innocent prankster, tying his mother's furs to a stick and thrusting them through bushes to scare passers-by. He loved board games and ice cream and was less than enthusiastic about washing dishes and reciting Bible verses, skirting the latter chore by choosing John 11.35, the shortest verse in the Bible, in which Jesus weeps. He was indeed precocious, however, when it came to his intellect and education. He breezed through high school over the course of only two years and entered college at 15. Early in his college years, it is apparent that Martin Luther King Jr. was already wrestling with what he would later call, quote, the race problem, end quote. This is evident in a letter to the editor of the Atlanta Constitution that he wrote at just 17 years old. 
In it, he censured people who, quote, raised the scarecrow of social mingling and intermarriage, end quote, when the question of racial equality is discussed, saying, quote, we want and are entitled to the basic rights and opportunities of American citizens, the right to earn a living, at work for which we are fitted by training and ability, equal opportunities in education, health, recreation, and similar public services, the right to vote, equality before the law, some of the same courtesy and good manners that we ourselves bring to all human relations." End quote. During those years, he also became interested in Henry David Thoreau's treatise on civil disobedience and, quote, became convinced that non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. In grappling with the problems his race faced, he began to consider how he might best contribute to a solution, and that was when he considered the church. He explains his reasoning most clearly himself. Quote, I had been brought up in the church and knew about religion, but I wondered whether it could serve as a vehicle to modern thinking. I wondered whether religion, with its emotionalism in Negro churches, could be intellectually respectable as well as emotionally satisfying." End quote. So he applied himself to following in his father's footsteps. Graduating with a sociology degree at 19, he immediately began preaching at Ebenezer Baptist with his father and continued his education, earning his theology degree at 22 and entering graduate studies in theology at Boston University, where he earned his doctorate at just 26 years old. His father did not appreciate his more cerebral style of preaching, nor did some of his associates understand all of his allusions to Thoreau and Nietzsche. But all doubts about the efficacy of his approach evaporated when in the mid-50s he helped organize and lead numerous historical civil rights protests. The same year he earned his Ph.D., King became involved with Rosa Parks and the Women's Political Council of Montgomery in organizing the bus boycotts and establishing the Montgomery Improvement Association to protest segregation. Within a month, he was receiving threats and facing angry crowds. His home was bombed. But before the year was out, bus segregation was defeated in the courts and King himself rode on the unsegregated transportation system. His success in Alabama led to his appointment as chair of the Southern Negro Leaders Conference on Transportation and Nonviolent Integration. As African American ministers across the South sought out his guidance in making strides in their own states. And it is this organization that King would transform into the SCLC. He was thrust into sudden fame, appearing on the cover of Time in 1957, and during the next few years, meeting Vice President Nixon, President Eisenhower, and presidential hopeful John F. Kennedy, traveling abroad to meet foreign dignitaries and the followers of Mohandas Gandhi, and giving national addresses. His first, a plea for enfranchisement, given before the Lincoln Memorial. The denial of this sacred right is a tragic betrayal of the highest mandates of our democratic tradition. 
So our most urgent request to the President of the United States and every member of Congress is to give us the right to vote, give us the ballot, and we will no longer have to worry the federal government about our basic rights. Give us the ballot. And we will no longer plead to the federal government for passage of an anti-lynching law. We will, by the power of our vote, write the law on the statute books of the South and bring an end to the dastardly acts of the hooded perpetrators of violence. Give us the ballot, and we will transform the salient misdeeds of bloodthirsty mobs into the calculated good deeds of orderly citizens. Give us the ballot, and we will fill our legislative halls with men of goodwill and send to the sacred halls of Congress men who will not sign a Southern Manifesto because of their devotion to the Manifesto of Justice. Meanwhile, his civil rights work continued. In Atlanta, he participated in a department store sit-in and was arrested. He was arrested twice more in 61 and 62 during segregation protests in Georgia. Then in 1963, he faced fire hoses and attack dogs in Birmingham and led 200,000 marchers on Washington, where he delivered his most famous speech. Justice, I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. With its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. And every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the South with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. Be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of thee. Sweet land 
of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrims' pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring. California has the largest population in the United States and the site of some of the most famous true crime cases in history. But there's more than meets the eye to the crime in California. Join Sean, Jessica, and Charles on the California True Crime Podcast as they cover crime both infamous and overlooked from around our state while looking at the deeper history that goes beyond beaches and movie stars. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. As if in response to the historic demonstration, two weeks later, a bomb killed four children at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, and King attended the funeral service to eulogize them. And so, my friends, they did not die in vain. God still has a way of wringing good out of evil. 
And history has proven over and over again that unmerited suffering is redemptive, that in spite of the darkness of this hour, we must not despair, we must not become bitter, nor must we harbor the desire to retaliate with violence. Life is hard, at times as hard as crucible steel, it has its bleak and difficult moment. If one will hold on, he will discover that God walks with him and that God is able to lift you from the fatigue of despair to the buoyancy of hope and transform dark and desolate valleys into sunlit paths of inner peace. And no greater tribute can be paid to you as parents and no greater Epitaph can come to them as children and where they died and what they were doing when they died. They died uh, between the sacred walls of the Church of God and they were discussing the eternal meaning of love. Two months later, JFK, with whom King had been working to advance the cause of civil rights, was gunned down in Dallas. Following the assassination, Dr. King began working with President Lyndon B. Johnson, a collaboration that would eventually bear fruit in the form of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. And in recognition of all his tireless and fearless activism, King received the Nobel Peace Prize. I accept the Nobel Prize for Peace at a moment when 22 million Negroes of the United States are engaged in a creative battle to end the long night of racial injustice. I accept this award on behalf of the civil rights movement, which is moving with determination and a majestic scorn for risk and danger to establish a reign of freedom and a rule of justice. I am mindful that only yesterday in Birmingham, Alabama, our children crying out for brotherhood were answered with fire hoses, snarling dogs and even death. Despite all this progress, King still saw a long and hard road ahead. During an attempted march from Selma to Montgomery in 1965, he and his marchers were met with violence, a day remembered as Bloody Sunday. And later that year, King confronted racism that was also tied up with economic issues when the riots erupted in Watts, California. He traveled there to preach nonviolence, but he was met with scorn by some who saw lawlessness as their only recourse and heckled him during his pleas for peaceful resistance. I'm not free there, and our brothers and sisters are not free there, and you are not free in California and in the North. Hey, 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 hey. 
say it all over America, and I come out to watch to tell you today, no matter what color you are, you are somebody. And all over the United States of America, the Negro must join hands and we must work Therefore, it wasn't only white racists by whom he was met with resistance in that turbulent period. As he entered a new phase in the SCLC's struggle for change, learning from what he saw in California, he expanded the scope of their activism beyond segregation, tackling the problem of slums and inequality in housing practices and education in Chicago in 1966. In the process, he met resistance from black community leaders as well, like Reverend Henry Mitchell. I feel like we know more about our problem than Dr. King because we live here. What would you suggest that he do, Reverend Mitchell? I would suggest when it comes down to our city, he should get the hell out of here. Many African-American ministers in Chicago liked the system the way it was, being that they wielded power in the community through the patronage of the mayor, Richard Daley, who ran the city through machine politics. This was by no means the first time Dr. King had encountered criticism from members of his own race. At the beginning of his career, racial separatist Malcolm X had strongly criticized Dr. King's nonviolent approach. Just as Uncle Tom back during slavery used to keep the Negroes from resisting the bloodhound or resisting the Ku Klux Klan by teaching them to, to love their enemy or pray for those who use them despitefully. Today, uh, Martin Luther King is just a 20th century or modern Uncle Tom or a religious Uncle Tom who is doing the same thing today to keep Negroes defenseless in the face of attack that Uncle Tom did on the plantation to keep those Negroes defenseless in the, in the face of the attack of the Klan in that well, I don't think of uh, love as, uh, in this context, as emotional bosh. I don't think of it as uh, a weak force, but I, I think of love as something strong and that organizes itself into powerful uh, direct action. Now, uh, this is what I try to teach in the struggle in the South, that uh, we are not engaged uh, in a struggle that means we sit down and do nothing. Uh, that there's a great deal of difference between non-resistance to evil and non-violent resistance. Uh, Non-resistance leaves, uh, leaves you in a state of stagnant passivity and deadening complacency, wherein non-violent resistance means that you do resist in a very strong and determined manner. And after Watts, it seemed that other elements of the civil rights movement were also beginning to turn away from his message of peaceful protest. In Mississippi, young activist Stokely Carmichael of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee began to express disillusionment with nonviolence despite his organization's name. He began to call for a show of strength from the black community, a push for so-called black power in opposition to the racist creed of white power. The voice of Stokely Carmichael, young leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, spoke louder and louder. At Greenwood, he sounded the march's new rallying call. It's time we stand up and take over. We want black power. We want black power. We want black power. 
King stood with Carmichael and marched beside him, but he never endorsed his message, instead preaching his consistent message of nonviolence and racial alliance, not conflict. What do you mean when you shout black power to these people back here? I mean that they are oppressed because they are black, and their rallying cry must be black power so that they can use that to ensure justice for themselves. I feel that while uh, believing firmly that power is necessary, uh, that it would be difficult for me to use the phrase black power because of the connotative meaning that it has for many people and the feeling uh, that uh, this may represent a desire to rise from a position of disadvantage to one of advantage, thereby subverting justice. They must ask themselves why they are afraid of the word black and why they're afraid of the phrase black power. Mr. Carmichael, are you as committed to the nonviolent approach as Dr. King is? No, I'm not. Why aren't you? Well, I just don't see it as a way of life. I never have. I grew up in the slums of New York, and I learned there that the only way that one survived was to use his fist. Could you comment on that, Dr. King? The Negro has an opportunity to inject morality in the veins of our civilization, and uh, for this reason, I will continue uh, to preach nonviolence. I will continue. Finally, a year before his death, answering the entreaties of many despite the reservations of many others, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. began to speak out against the war in Vietnam. And I've come to see that uh, we have uh, many more difficult days ahead and some of the old optimism was a little superficial and now it must be tempered with a solid realism. And I think the realistic fact is that we still have a long, long way to go and that we are involved in a war on Asian soil, uh, which if not checked and stopped, can poison the very soul of our nation. To King, it would be hypocrisy to protest violence at home when our country acted as a purveyor of violence abroad. In 1967, he identified three evils in society. The first was racism, which he had fought his entire career. The second was poverty, which he had come to realize was hopelessly entangled with the race issue. The third, he acknowledged, was militarism. Because there are three evils in our nation. It's not only racism, but economic exploitation of poverty would be one, and then militarism. And I think in a sense, and in a very real sense, these three are tied inextricably together, and we aren't going to get rid of one without getting rid of the other. He encountered stiff backlash from quarters both expected and unexpected after opposing the Vietnam War as he began organizing the Poor People's Campaign. Thus, when called to Memphis in March of 67, he struggled to sustain hope and confidence. But those around him on his final day saw a change in his disposition after delivering his mountaintop speech, as though he were renewed with purpose and had exercised the fears and doubts that plagued him. In fact, he was downright playful, engaging in a pillow fight with his friends in their room at the Lorraine Motel and looking forward to a dinner of real soul food at a friend's house. Unbeknownst to them, across the street from the Lorraine, 
past some bushes, a wall, and an embankment at a cut-rate rooming house full of drunk and infirm tenants, a thin white man calling himself John Willard had checked in. During the next hour or so, tenants remember hearing someone stalking back and forth between a room and the shared bathroom at the end of the hall, which had a clear line of sight from its window to the Lorraine Motel. And tenants who tried to use the bathroom during this hour found it always occupied. At approximately 6.01 p.m., the tenants heard what sounded like the pop of a firecracker. And on the balcony of the Lorraine, little more than 200 feet from the rooming house's bathroom window, Martin Luther King Jr. collapsed. A 30 6 bullet had shattered his jaw, entered his neck, and opened his jugular vein. Despite attempts by his friends to stop the bleeding and rush him to medical care, the single shot fired that day killed Dr. King. Police were on the scene immediately, as they happened to be ensconced at a nearby fire station, keeping King and his entourage under surveillance. They went to the Lorraine first, where witnesses indicated that they believed the shot had come from the direction of the boarding house. Converging on the building, they found other witnesses who had seen a man leaving the building with a bundle, which he had abandoned at a storefront before fleeing in a white Mustang. In the bundle, they found a rifle, bullets, clothing, a radio, binoculars, and a toiletry bag. And in the rooming house bathroom, they found the window screen pushed out, the tub moved under the window, and a scuff mark on the sill. In Mr. John Willard's room, they found a chair by an open window and binocular straps on the floor. Not 10 minutes had passed since the shooting before police had a description of both the suspect and his vehicle, but from the rooming house, it is quite possible to have driven out of state within that time frame. Authorities changed all traffic lights to red in order to slow the suspect's escape, but in an egregious failing, they did not establish roadblocks or extend their all-points bulletin to neighboring states. Meanwhile, a CB radio operator led police on a wild goose chase, claiming to be in a high-speed pursuit of the white Mustang. This hoax, in addition to the fact that a large portion of the police force did not engage in the hunt because of the growing threats of rioting, contributed to the assassin's escape. As the killer, it was assumed, had crossed state lines, the FBI took over the manhunt, while riots broke out across the country. Tracing the rifle as well as a laundry mark on the discarded clothing, they soon had a number of aliases other than John Willard, including the name Eric S. Galt, all for a man matching the suspect's description. Then a white Mustang was reported abandoned in Atlanta by a man matching the same description. It was registered to one Eric Starvo Galt, connecting the Mustang to the abandoned bundle containing the rifle. Garage service and tourist visa stickers showed the Mustang had been in Mexico and Los Angeles during the last year. Fiber evidence further indicated that the Eric Galt who drove the car had been in the rooming house across from the Lorraine, 
and as they traced his movements in California previous to the assassination, they came up with a photo of him from a bartending school he had attended in L.A. The seller of the rifle thereafter picked that photo out of a lineup to identify him as the purchaser of the firearm. Finally, a lead on Galt's whereabouts came their way when a money order purchased in California was used by an Eric Galt for a correspondence course in locksmithing that had been completed in Montreal, Canada. When they investigated this Galt's rooming house lodgings in Montreal, they found a map of Atlanta on which Ebenezer Baptist Church, SCLC headquarters, and the King family residence had been circled. The manager of the rooming house also identified Galt's photo from among others. Fingerprints from the bundle items and from the map found in the room in Montreal eventually came up as belonging to one James Earl Ray, a career thief and escaped prisoner from Missouri State Penitentiary. Now, with a real name and more photos, the FBI put Ray on the most wanted list, went to the press, and disseminated wanted posters all over North America. Eventually, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, through a painstaking search of passport applications, connected Ray to another alias, Ramon Sneed, and further traced his activities under that alias to a travel agency that had booked him on a flight to London. So the manhunt went international. While back at home, on June 5th, the country suffered yet another horrifying tragedy in the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. Two days later, James Earl Ray turned up at Heathrow Airport, trying to use his false Canadian passport to travel to Brussels. He was detained for having a handgun without a permit. More than two months after Dr. King's assassination, the chief suspect in his murder was caught and awaiting extradition. From the beginning, conspiracy theories abounded. Dubious informants claimed that Ray had escaped to South America with the CIA or to Cuba aboard a yacht, or that, like Knight Rider, he had driven his Mustang into a moving truck and was being harbored by the Ku Klux Klan. JFK conspiracy theorists asserted that Ray greatly resembled one of the three tramps the unidentified vagrants photographed at Dealey Plaza, while white supremacist groups claimed that the real people behind the killing were the SCLC themselves, unhappy with King's leadership, or perhaps militant black youth disillusioned with King's insistence on nonviolence. To others, the likely culprits were the Mafia, or the FBI, or perhaps both. Among the most vocal supporters of conspiracy claims was Ralph Abernathy himself, who spoke for others in the SCLC and for King's family in demanding further investigation. Conspiracy theories multiplied and grew ever more specific after Ray began to talk to a writer, William Bradford Huey. Long before his trial was set to start, Huey began publishing a series of articles in Look magazine detailing James Earl Ray's claims that a man named Raoul had manipulated him, maneuvered him to Memphis, and arranged for him to take the fall for a murder he didn't commit. On Ray's 40th birthday, during a special hearing ahead of his trial, he pleaded guilty on his lawyer's advice 
but he insisted that he was only legally guilty and that he did not accept sole responsibility for the crime, actually dropping the word conspiracy to the judge. Within hours, Dr. King's widow, Coretta, released a statement confirming that she did not believe Ray had acted alone and demanding that authorities continue their investigation until all those responsible had been brought to justice. Within days, Ray recanted his guilty plea, and for the rest of his life, he fought to win a new trial and convince the world of his innocence. Even today, many are inclined to believe him, subscribing to some conspiracy scenario or another. But how logical and credible are these theories? Keep an eye out for the next part in this series as we examine the legend of Raoul. Thank you for listening to Historical Blindness, the Odd Past podcast. Much of the music on this episode was provided by film composer Alex Kish. Visit alexkishmusic.com to get compositions for your own projects. I need to thank my partner patrons for their tireless dedication to the show. Thanks, Marina, Joe, Michael, Jacob, Diane, and David. You're keeping the dream alive. In addition to pledging on Patreon, be sure to support the show by rating and reviewing it, following on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram visiting the website at historicalblindness.com, and shopping for show merch or following the Amazon links to buy recommended books like my principal source for this series, Killing the Dream by Gerald Posner, or like my own historical novel, Manuscript Found, a picaresque retelling of the founding of Mormonism with some Freemason conspiracy intrigue woven in. It's all historical and it's a wild story. Until next time, don't let the dream die. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.